Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What I'm going to head into today follows perfectly from Professor Gorman's last two lectures, because we are really getting into an issue of friendship. And I'm going to try to put it get together as best we can, but we have to get over book five, which is the chiasm. Uh, the last time we talked, we were hanging around in the vicinity of books three and four. I have to go back to four briefly. We're going to get over five, and at beginning at five, my description, not Augustine's, my description for the purpose of the lecture is new parochia, a new family. He goes from one set of friends, family, so to speak, uh, to a new family in Milan. And that's four primed. And it's four primed because the subject of four friends, including the death of his friend and his meditation on friendship. So uh, uh, six is four primed. He's really strict on this. I'm not inventing this structure. He knew, he planned it out exactly in advance. Uh, but that also includes uh, book seven, because there is the issue in book seven of how far he's going to go with his religious quest in reading the Platonists. And they're part of that parochia. The parochia, the family around uh, uh, Ambrose consisted of philosophers, civil servants, uh, quasi-monks, uh, and, and many, many different religious conversions, but they came from different kinds of occupations. And the Hortentius turns out to be important because seven is three-primed. And this one's on the Platonist. And the last time we had to face the Platonist issue, that it was upwardly ascending wisdom, uh, was back here in three. And he comes to an interesting conclusion about that. Uh, now, in one sense, eight is the full revelation of this new parochia, because we have seven or eight conversions going on. Among the group that has been hanging around in the vicinity of Ambrose's orbit, and their own friend, once and twice removed. And eight is two-primed, and what was two 
Two was the entering into the stormy sea of society in book two. Um, this is the conversion book. What well, is the book of several conversions? And then I, I call, just for the convenience of my lectures, this part, the Father's House. Because it culminates, now this is one primed, uh, when he's born, uh, here he's reborn, he's baptized, and he and Monica have the vision. Which is as close as he's going to get to the Father's House, at least in that mode of action. So, about this new parochia, I want to begin there. It's a set of friends. And by the way, what's going on in Milan is quite similar to what's going on in other major cities of the Imperium. Uh, Greek, Anatolia, uh, Egypt, North Africa. That is... Christian friendships are expanding, and they're becoming very prominent, which shouldn't surprise us because by the time Augustine is doing this, which is the late 4th century, we, we already have three generations having grown up since Constantine. So the, the Christian friendships are, and we have, we have, uh, one and a half to two centuries since St. Antony and St. Pacomius. So monasticism is blossoming everywhere, which become hubs of friendship and hubs of learning and all sorts of things. This is going on across the empire. Augustine's version of the story uh, is well known because so many people have, have read the Confessions. Um, for the background to this, this is the book you want to read. The Final Pagan Generation is by an author named Watts. It's on UCAL Press. Maybe, I'm thinking two or three years ago. It, it's a very good read. And his, uh, his research is, how did it happen seemingly overnight that fraternity and friendship, at least in the learned capitals of the Imperium, is taken over by Christians. The fellowships, the fraternities, uh, the, con the job connections. And he tries to explain that in this book. It's very, very good, very readable. Uh, he's very learned. Okay. So, the passing over, of course, is keyed to the prodigal son who stands up and goes back. I just want to show you just a couple of references to the prodigal. In, let me go back to book 2.6. He's talking about stealing the pears, which is already set in the context of uh, a garden. And uh, in this case, throwing away food that's perfectly good. And he says at the very, in the very last paragraph, and was I thus, though a prisoner, making a show of a kind of truncated liberty, doing unpunished 
what I was not allowed to do, and so producing a darkened image of omnipotence. So the darkened image of omnipotence, uh, yeah, it's the prodigal. That is, he progressively, as he goes further away from the father's house, becomes even opaque to himself. And even more strictly, in, to use Augustine's vocabulary, the darkened image of omnipotence is the triplex sin. That's a, that's a reference to the prodigal. Um, and if we go back to 2.2, two, and we go to chapter 2, and what was it that delighted me? And at the end of that first paragraph, he says, and still you were silent, O oh my joy, so slow in coming. Then you were silent, and I went on going further and further, making my way into more and more of these sterile plantations of sorrow, arrogant in my dejection and still restless in my weariness. Direct reference to the prodigal son. Um, then turn ahead to 3.6. I'm not going to go on and on with this. I just want to give you a few references because it'll tip you off how to read it. In 3.6, uh, three-quarters of the way down, the second full paragraph. For me then, at that time, he himself was in Carthage. Where were you? How far away? Far indeed was I straying from you, debarred even from the husks of the swine whom I fed with husks. Direct quotation from the, uh, from the prodigal, Luke 15. For even the stories of the poets and the masters of literature are better than these deceitful traps. And in 3.7, 3.7, I didn't highlight it in my text, so I'm just going to have to recite it from memory. He says, and I discovered that I had become the place of sorrow. That is, the distance from the father's house is not to be measured sociologically. It's not to be measured in terms of place, a geographical place. It's... Uh, it's to be measured in terms of the sorrow of the soul. So, this leads him in book four, which gets us close to the book five, the crossing over. The death of the friend, and there's a lot to say about the death of the friend, who Augustine calls another self. which is what constitutes human grief, because when a friend who is another self dies, one experiences a kind of death. Or it's worse than death. It's actually worse than death, because grieving is a freaking out about the stability of your own soul. Right? Uh, so he wants to give a little lesson about the nature of time and love. And if we understand time structurally, we can understand how 
It is not an enemy, but a friend, if we learn to love rightly. And this is done um, work. in several of the chapters, but I'm, I'm going to turn to 4.10. Turn us, O God of hosts, and show us thy countenance, and we shall be whole. For whatever man's soul turns, except toward you, it is fixed to sorrows. Even if it fixes on things of beauty outside you and outside itself, these things of beauty would have no existence at all unless they were from you. They rise and set in their rising. They begin, as it were, to exist. They develop so as to reach their perfection. And after that, they grow old and die. Not all grow old, but all die. So when they rise and reach their way into existence, the quicker they are to grow into being, the more they hurry toward ceasing to be. Yeah, the less uh, things whose career in being are over very quickly, uh, well, we have to learn how to love those things. I remember when I was in, when I was in uh, intermediate school, we used to sit in class and we would get those Hershey bars with the little squares. Break one off and put it on your tongue and see how long you can go without going... Yeah. <laughs> we have contests on that. Right. How long can you love it before you have to devour it? That is their law. So much you have given them, namely to be parts of a structure in which the parts are not all in existence at the same time. Instead, by fading and replacing each other, they are all together constitute the universe of which they are parts. Our own speech, too which is constructed out of meaningful sounds, follows the same principles. There could never be a complete sentence unless one word, as soon as the syllables have been sounded, cease to be in order to make room for the next. In these things let my soul praise you, God, creator of all things. Yet let it not be stuck and glued too close to them through the love of the senses of the body. For these things go along their path toward non-existence, and they tear and wound the soul with terrible longings, since the soul itself desires to be and to find rest in what it loves. But on these things there is no place to rest, since they do not stay. They pass away, and, follow, and no one can follow them with their bodily senses. Uh, so where there is where there is an entire universe under the order of time, at any given moment, only one thing exists, the present of the present. But it's crumbling. I mean, before you even name it, it's already crumbled. And you try to retain something of it by a present of the past or by a present of the future to anticipate. Uh, and then he... Uh, he recommends, in 11, thinking of the Psalms. And this is very important for Augustine. Um, when we chant the Psalms, we have to let every verse go. 
we're, we're anticipating we're anticipating in every verse a more comprehensive whole to emerge. But we're not going to get the more comprehensive whole until every one of them goes by. So three things are at work. Atencio, memoria, expectatio. And uh, once we learn how to pay attention to temporality, things exhibiting their being in what I think modern people would call temporality, I think Augustine would not quarrel with the term, um, we begin to learn how to love. I mean, even simple things like eating or watching a movie or chanting the Psalms or reading a book. That is, if we try to love a temporal being by freezing its present moment, we cannot love it correctly. And the natural punishment is the grief of our souls. So, by the way, this is not Stoicism. He's not recommended that we not love temporal things. In fact, what I'm going to try to report today, he says, we must, and the Stoics and the Platonists are wrong on this one. We must love things in transit. Because God is ultimately teaching us that way. And that's why we have scriptures and they don't. Okay. But you have to learn how to do it correctly. You can't freeze it. Right. Um, you have to learn how holes of meaning come together by experiencing their, their grammar. A sentence, parts of a sentence, a paragraph, right? And an entire psalm. And he contends that our lives are like a psalm. That's why we must do psalms, especially as Christians, because doing the psalms is teaching us how to be taught by God through a temporal medium. And he, and this is in book four, and he admonishes himself and the reader not to seek a happy life in the country of death. Yes. Um. One kind of question I had about this was Augustine seems like he really didn't, um, he was very reluctant to cry for his friend and for his mom when she later died. But it just seems to me like, I don't know, Jesus cried for Lazarus. Um, no. I don't know, how do you think Augustine reconciled? He wept in book six like the Dickens for the loss of his concubine. That paragraph is actually very, because remember Monica in book six now. This is part of the new parochia, which is a pretty funky parochia in some ways. But Monica wants him to marry a woman who is two years underage for marriage. She's rich. And will be a, a good partner, <laughs> or at least supporter for Augustine's uh, uh, imperial career. But this requires him to put aside his concubine, with whom he'd had his child, Adeodatus. We don't know her name, but Augustine's grieving for her in Book 6 is quite authentic. Right? 
It, it is not as though we're not supposed to grieve. It's supposed to be that grief is not to be acted out as the fixed point of our happiness. You have to let things die. You, you have to let things pass away. You have to learn how to love them properly. It is a bit moralistic, but it's, it's interesting. He, he's surely on the right point, I would say here, that um, we need to understand temporality, because to understand temporality is to understand being a creature. And creatures come into their existence and mature and become parts of a larger whole uh, through time. So if you are a Stoic or maybe some kinds of Platonists who say, don't even think of time, think only of the immortal, you are not going to be able to think properly of a creature. And if you can't think properly of a creature, the main... The main road to God is close to. Basically, this is the lesson he's trying to bring out here. Um, so, this also has to do with signs and things, right? And all signs are things, but uh, some things are signs, including events. And the, the, the importance of Scripture for Augustine, he's just beginning to figure this out. The importance of Scripture is that we are able to correct the dead end of the Platonists because the Platonists cannot be taught by the humility of history and of time. They only want to be taught by that directly by that which is completely immobile and, and eternal. And therefore, they don't know how to stretch their souls. And not being able to stretch their souls through time, uh, here's a good question. He's really good on this in the city of God. Who in the, the world is going to teach them? All speech is through time. Who can be their example or model? Because all, all of our ordinary examples and models are also in time. But it means that they have nothing but contempt for Scripture. And this is what's going on in this new parochia, and which he describes greatly in this book. The Christian, well, the intelligentsia becoming Christian. I would say the grammarians finally not just becoming metaphysical, but becoming Christian. What's the key to this? It's learning how to read Scripture. That's what's going on with Jerome. It's going across the empire. People are reading scripture. And therefore, they can be taught by God because what is scripture? It's the story in time about where we come from and where we're going and what God has spoken. Which means, against the Manichaeans, we must read Jewish scripture. We must read that story because the, that story is telling us what God, how God is searching for us and what he has in mind. So, uh, right. So that, that's what's going on in the new parochia. 
we have to learn how not to ascend like the uh, retention, but how to stretch. And he, he, he compares the soul to a, to a new kind of uh, leather bag that's really stiff. And it's by desiring and stretching out in anticipation in time that it gets more and more supple. And as it gets more and more supple, it learns how to hold more of the good. So, now, if you'll follow me, can you turn to Book 11, Chapter 29? What is the, for Augustine, the, the opposite of the Hortentius? It's Philippians 3. So here we are in Book 11, which is the book on time. I just have to skip ahead to show you the connect. But because thy loving kindness is better than all lives, see, my life is a kind of distraction and dispersal. Now, actually, that's not a good translation. Uh, it, the Latin word is distensio, which means being stretched, being stretched. Like if you were to take uh, bubble gum and pull it like this, that's distensio. He says, and the right hand upheld me in my Lord, the Son of Man, the mediator betwixt thee, the one and us, the many, many also in our many distractions over so many things. So that, I, so that through him I may apprehend in whom I have been apprehended, and that I pray be gathered up from my former days to follow the one forgetting what is behind, not wasted and scattered on things which are to come and things which will pass away, but intent in stretching forth to those things which are before. Well, I'm mean, just quoting St. Paul. Of Philippians 3. So it's not avoiding time, it's a discipline within time to, how to put it, in a way have an ever expanding sense of the present by still being able to anticipate and love something which is not entirely present in your experience. Uh, and, and, and in chapter 30, he goes through it again. He calls being stretched out to those things which are before. And he means by those things which are before, those things which are to come. So we have to learn the discipline of time. Book four is crucial on that in the context of, of love and death, in the death of the friend. Well, anyway, when he passes over, um, you know, he doesn't go for absolutely sterling reasons. He's been fed up with the Manichaeans. I'm not going to go into the Manichaean issue right now, but Manichaean is definitely part of the avoiding grief and sorrow by being beamed up, not going ahead. Uh, and he loses all confidence in their ability to interpret scriptures, their, their scientific prowess, and that poor Manichaean bishop, Faustus, uh, by the way, which in Latin means the lucky guy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, 
shows up and he knows so little, he hires Augustine to be his tutor in Latin. Augustine said, enough of this. And he, his father had just died. And he also says, I've grown weary of my father's house. That is Patricius's house. And the friend had died. And he has an offer. It, it's, it's emerging, but he has an offer. He leaves North Africa. His mother finds out too late, and she's weeping like Dido on the cliffs as Augustine is gone. He gets to Rome. He thought Rome would be the best place to land because he, he heard that the students were more responsible. But it turned out to be the opposite. The students cheated him every day out of his, out of his stipend. And then he got news that his appointment in Milan is secure, and he became the master of imperial rhetoric. Uh, we learn about all of that in six, basically. Uh, he apparently hated the job at the very beginning. So something had happened in, in Augustine's soul that he had to stand up maybe once a week and have a speech about how great the emperor is in his satrap, and maybe even how good the horse is, right, for uh, military parades and these kinds of things. And this is why he was immediately attracted to Ambrose, because when Ambrose spoke, stood up and spoke, he, he, he gave us uh, a multidimensional teaching on the truth of Scripture. So... You're not going to learn scripture unless you, in, in some way, learn the discipline of time. Because, of course, we have those four meanings. The literal, by the way, the literal is for Augustine as it is for St. Thomas, the basis. All the other meanings in the text are not approachable unless you have the literal meaning. They're not a substitute for the literal meaning. But the literal meaning is what the author himself intended. It's the literal meaning. So you have to, you, you have to study this. And um, then we have the allegorical. That is where uh, God, through a human agent, has put into the literal meaning in the various books of Scripture uh, the anticipation of the Christ who will be our Savior. Yeah. Isaac, Abel, and so on and so forth. That's the allegory. It's for those who have discernment, in the literal meaning is already the promise of salvation. Then we have the moral. The moral simply means, also built in, is uh, anticipation of the, of the church founded by, founded by the Savior, and it will include even sacraments. Moral means actions of the church, or the characteristic actions of the church. And then, of course, we have eschatology. That is also built into the meanings are indications of... of the life and glory, 
by the way, which is not without time, but it's a kind of an avum of time. An avum of time. It's a time that's not just passing through our souls like water through a creek. It, it's the time of the angels, the good angels. It's called avum. So, to be taught that way, and Augustine had not been taught that way, and he's listening to Ambrose doing this. And what does all of this require? It requires wisdom, but you can't approach that wisdom without the humility of attending to the text and being taught in time by a God who is eternal. The, uh, but he meets Platonists. At the same time, he's meeting Platonists. Some of them are quasi-Christianized. Others aren't, but it's a kind of community of people who have at least this much in common. They think Ambrose is great, and uh, they like each other because they're smart and learned <laughs> and important. Okay. It's a salon, and what's crucial to it is Ambrose because of his wisdom in being able to expound these. And he, he knew what he was doing with this community of, of people. And of course, Monica shows up. So the new parochia really is a new parochia because by, by chapter six, uh, Monica shows up and she's a real devoted disciple of Ambrose. Right? And uh, Olympias shows up, his best friend. And um, anyway, the, uh, the community is formed, and the Platonists, there's more than one kind of Platonism going on in this community, but it's, it's a kind of Latin Platonism, which is, comes out of Victorinus and uh, Plotinus. They're crucial. They help him with something, and it's the problem of evil. Now, this could be a semester course, so just give me five minutes and I'll move on. Um, so because of his training in Manichaeanism, Augustine believed for years that evil is a thing. It, it's corporeal stuff. That's evil. That is, those are the spiritual aeons who got trapped um, by the by the Creator, by Jehovah. They get trapped and have to live out their existence in what we'd call gross corporeal bodies, and they come under laws and disciplines that do not recognize the dignity of the soul, but only discipline of the body. It sounds like a Michel Foucault thing. But, and um, the... Uh, so, evil as a thing. And uh, he had put those guys aside, but not this idea. The idea is still lingering. And he has to find a way out of this, and the Platonists give him the solution, which is that evil is not a thing. Because anything that exists, insofar as it is, is good. And therefore, evil has to... Evil is never a prion. 
present. It's an abends. It's something of something missing away from what is. So if you, but insofar as something is, it's good, and it is good either in itself or it's good in concert with a comprehensive order. So when you go to the doctor, the doctor says, uh, "Sorry, I have bad news." Well, now I hear they're doing this by chat box. But anyway, I have bad news. Uh, you have, I think, just inoperable cancer. And the, 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 the platonic solution is, well, insofar as there's cell division, it's not bad. It's, it's, it, it's ordered cell division. But it, there's something in that order that's not there. But try to find what's not there in reality. And so Augustine, to make a long story short, buys this. That, that evil is, a, is an absence rather than a presence. And, uh, and he thinks he can go one more step uh, with the Platonists. But here is the problem. He begins to notice something. I think it comes from, he is beginning to read scripture. And he's being taught by Ambrose. And he understands very sharply the degradation of his job as master of imperial rhetoric. And he needs to, um, well, he noticed that the argument of the Platonists is a good argument for starters, but the Platonists will not submit in humility to any other source of truth. And so now I want to read the big passage on that one. It's Book 7, Chapter 20. Now, there's a lot of stuff leading up to that, but this really captures it, his chain of thought. On these points, I was perfectly certain about God being eternal, all kinds of things, both philosophically and in terms of natural theology and the things that Ambrose But I was still too weak to be able to enjoy you. I talked away as if I were a finished scholar, but if I had not sought the way to you in Christ our Savior, what would have been finished would have been my own soul. It's a great wordplay. Peritus means expert, the skilled, the, the skilled expert, and perero means killed. So the best translation is not skilled but killed. For I had begun to want to have the reputation of a wise man. My punishment was within me, but I did not weep. I was merely puffed up with my knowledge. And where was that charity which builds from the foundation of humility, the foundation, which is Jesus Christ? By the way, the foundation here is the Latin word for building. And I think what he's probably referring to here is when you say constructed on the foundation, it's the church built on Christ. That is what he's discovering in this new parochial firsthand. Um, so we would say modeled on the pater, God the Father, but preeminently teaching us how to be a filius, a son. That's what he was learning. That's what that sentence means, I think. 
Humility was not a subject which these books of the Platonists could have taught me. Yet I believe that you wanted me to come upon these books before I made a study of your scriptures. You wanted an impression made by them on me to be printed in my memory so that when I later had become, as it were, tamed by your book, your fingers dressing my wound. Actually, the word tame here is mansuifio, mansuifio. That is, to make civilized or tamed. Um, how is the soul to be tamed? Your fingers dressing my wounds. And the verb here is consuere. And consuere means to sew together or to patch. I think what he's referring to here, and I do this on the basis of other of his commentaries on Genesis, especially the in Genesis 3, when the first parents are kicked out of the garden, and Augustine notes, well, of course, they were naked. And God the Father does two things for them. Before they're, they're, they're dismissed, or as they're being dismissed, he gives them the promise of a Savior. And he gives them clothes. This is what he's talking about. Knitting together are these clothes. You can say, the skin stitched together. And what are skin stitched together? The pages of Scripture. Allegorical meaning. So just as Scripture will be a book of skin stitched together, so God promised them a Savior, and by making clothes for them, promised to be educated about that Savior through Holy Scripture. I should be able to see clearly the difference between presumption and confession, between those who see their goal without seeing how to get there and those who see the way which leads to that happy country, which is there for us not only to perceive, but to live in. For had I first been trained, that is, shaped or fashioned, or actually brought up, being brought have I first been brought up in your scriptures and my familiarity with them had found you growing sweet to me and then afterward had come upon these books of the Platonists, it's possible that they might have swept me away from the solid basis on piety. So it's in God's plan, he's saying here, that uh, he was brought to this new parochia uh, and he was being taught by Ambrose who was teaching him the rudiments of scriptural interpretation, and he's being taught by Platonist friends. Um, so, here, I'm thinking of Professor Gorman's remarks. This thing about things being stitched together and being brought up, these, these images that he's using here, this community that he is in is a quite dynamical community. And not all of them go in the same direction. Uh, but they're all interested in some direction to go in. And what he claims to have learned by Book 7 is that uh, he needs to directly embrace 
the discipline of being taught by scriptures. But it's not just being taught by scriptures, it's being taught by temporal things. And so we can think of a chain of imitation going on here, a social chain of imitation. And we, we, we have to remember that uh, oh, by the time we're in here, we're going back to his critique of the chains of imitation he grew up in. Um, okay, so the, the parochia really reveals itself in the conversions that go on. So we have, beginning in Book 8, Victorinus, who is a kind of Platonist Christian. And he was actually the teacher of Ambrose. He's, He's an older, wise guy. And actually, after Ambrose dies, he becomes bishop. So Victorinus was like, your favorite counselor and uncle in the faith. After all, he was that for Ambrose himself. And, of course, it's um, Victorinus who gives to Augustine, but the other members of his group, stories of who to imitate. And the first story he gives is the story of Antony. I mean, no, excuse me, uh, the story of Simplicanus, who is a philosopher who does come to the conclusion that Christianity is right, but won't take baptism because he doesn't want to uh, be so undignified as to go into a church with all these people who are not even at the level of grad students and, you know, take the waters of baptism. Yeah. Um, and every time uh, uh, Simplicanus would talk to him, he'd say, are you ready to do it? No, not ready to do it. But you believe. He said, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to make a fool of myself. But finally, he, he's inspired and, and says, uh, I want to be baptized in public. And uh, even uh, Simplicanus says to him, you don't have to do that. We can do it privately. I I can arrange it with the cathedral. No, I've got to do it because I've discovered discovered that the way up is down, which is Augustine's major discovery in Book 7 and 8. The way up is down. That is, it's it's a kenosis. It's, It's humility. And so then we have a great story that's uh, happened in the community. And then we have the story of uh, Ponticianus, who's also kind of a wise guy, who is talking to Augustine and Olympias and telling stories about conversions and said, you know, that life of St. Anthony in the desert has been very important around here. And they go, who is St. Anthony of the desert? And he told them the story about St. Anthony being uh, illiterate. His parents died, leave him a little bit of cash, which he gives to someone to take care of his sister who becomes a nun. And he hears the word at Mass, sell all that you have and follow me. Think nothing of the morrow kind of thing. And he goes out and becomes the great monk. 
And what is amazing about the story is that he didn't hesitate. He just did it. Someone said, how did he do that? So uh, it was grace. And that, uh, you know, he became the father of thousands upon thousands of monks. And Augustine and Olympias say to each other, why didn't we hear about this guy? And so then um, he tells the story of the two courtiers, uh, both of whom have fiancés. They're working in the imperial bureaucracy, and they come across that book, The Life of Antony, written by Athanasius. And they say the same thing. Why hadn't we heard about this before? And obviously, it's easier than what we thought. And they, the two guys say, we're, we're going to go off and join monasteries. And the two girlfriends says, we will. Okay. Amazing stories. Um, and so, uh, something's heading for a climax. But before the conversion of Augustine and Olympias, is the problem of the will. I will sketch this and then come back in more detail on this in the next talk. So they've already, they've already come to the conclusion that evil is not a thing. Evil is not the will. Evil is some obvious absence, something that should be there, but it's not. So this is my down and dirty sketch of, of this. I think it's correct, but we can come back and read the actual passages. Augustine discovers a really important distinction. To will or not to will. We call this free choice. That is, it's kind of up or down. Choose it or not choose it. Okay. And this is what he means by liberum arbitrium, freedom of the will. I mean, freedom of choice, which is an aspect of the will. Um, now, up to this point in his life, and especially after going over to Milan, both he and Olympias, we know what we want to do. But we didn't do it. We made free choice. We did exercise our freedom of choice. Right. We didn't pull the trigger on the right choice, actually. And uh, how in the world did Antony do this? How do any of these guys do this that we read about? That must be distinguished from to be willing to do. I have two minutes, right? Okay. For years, my wife used to say every Tuesday night, will you take out the trash? Because you had to be put out on Tuesdays. And I said, you've asked me this a hundred times. Yes, I'll take it out. Put it out. But if you're asking me whether I'm willing, you know the right answer to that one. That's so why you have to ask me every Tuesday night. I don't, I don't like to, I'm not really willing to do this. But I'll choose it. That's the problem. It's, he calls it the, the divided will. 
Because, see, even the, the person, the addict, can say, no more junk. Here, made a choice. It, it's not going to be very efficacious, right? But made the choice. Not efficacious. There's something in here that is the, uh, the evidence of original sin. This remains intact. Yay. Nay. This is not intact. Now, as Professor Gordon was talking about the virtues, see, if we map this onto Aristotle, which might be dangerous to do, because Aristotle doesn't really have anything like this doctrine of the will, I don't think. But if we map it onto Aristotle, we'd say this moral virtue allow this to connect with this. That we do the action we would choose to do with, with joy. We, we actually like doing it. And we don't have to be making three choices all the time. Right? When, uh, he's, he's not a quarterback anymore, but when Tom Brady played, it's fluid. Of course he's willing to pass accurately. He doesn't have to stop in the hole and say, should I do well or not well? It's fluid. All of that is perfectly integrated here. Okay. You don't, we don't have to go through terrible crises of conscience and woundings and of the soul and that kind of thing. But original sin, is this is the evidence of it for Augustine. And that's why to try to make Christianity, the proposition of Christianity, propositions, yeah, your name, like a Billy Graham thing. Doesn't understand the problem. Right. Now, it could be good that you say, yay. But you won't be saying it for very long <laughs> with, without grace. Grace enters in here for Augustine. And so the triple X sin of pride, curiosity, and lust is, is what shapes it. Listen, this is not bad. You really, this comes in handy. Free, free choice. Uh, and so Augustine figures out that human beings can do almost anything they want to do except for cure this. He gives all these examples in Book 8. Like, he goes down to the docks in Hipparegius, and he sees a guy who's a actually able to do uh, complex tunes through farting. Or people who swallow fire, right? People can do all kinds of weird things, make their eyelids turn up. Yeah, yeah. But they can't do that. <laughs> and he says, this is a monstrosity. Yeah, that's, that's the actual term. It's a monstrosity. It's, it's like a teratology. We need the science of embryonic monsters. The will is misshapen by this. And who is to solve that one? And that leaves us in the garden again. We'll come back to the garden in book eight uh, tomorrow. Thank you. I, I've heard in reform circles that, you know, that Agnus Dei, like, just 321, 
the animal skins are taken to cover them. That's like the robes of righteousness that the sainthood of believers wear on earth. And that's really interesting about the pages of scripture. I was wondering where you got that. And, I got it from Augustine. He has four commentaries on this. Really? Oh, yes. He spent the rest of his life writing commentaries on Genesis 1. So, here it is in the Confession that the, the, the skins are stitched together, and what is stitched together are pages of Scripture. Yeah. So, it, it, it's an allegorical interpretation. Right. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff he was listening to. That's the kind of stuff Ambrose was talking about in his sermons. Okay. And, um, yeah. yeah he, has, he has a lot to, to give you another example out, out of Genesis. Uh, Augustine asks, why did God come to judge them at Vespers? Because remember, Vespers, it's still light. Not completely dark, but it's getting shadowy. And Augustine's, uh, and they were hiding. And Augustine says, well, God had to do, by, by the way, this is a literal, not an allegorical, actually. He had to do that because of the darkening of their conscience. And to, and to proclaim or lay down the sentence for sin, they had to be wide awake. At least the way. That's why I had to do it at Vespers. Yeah. Oh, Augustine, Augustine turns out to be a master at these things. But yeah, he, he has four commentaries. He was writing them all the way practically till, till the end. Okay. Yeah. And that's why all of this is headed to the interpretation in the beginning. Because. Uh, after the, the autobiographical books, he says, what do I need to know? I want to know in the beginning. And he, he figures out in book 10 he can't know it because all creation is ex nihilo. So uh, the, the true beginning is not something that can be like captured just through knowing our own being. And therefore, he has to be taught by Scripture what in the beginning means. Knowledge, knowledge of self, knowledge of God. But he wants to know what is the archae? What, is, what does it mean that in the beginning, God, and then a whole series of propositions, the things that are made. And the examination of his own memory does not yield that. Right? Like, oh, I can remember a pork sausage I had in Cleveland. Uh, my parents tell me that I was born in July. You're not going to get to in Principio. <laughs> You're just not going to get there. And this is what he discovers by, in fact, it's probably his final liberation from Platonism. It's in Book 10. That you can't go through the creature's power of memoria and find the nooks, the nooks stands that the uncreated. So to learn about the uncreated, you, you need to be taught by the uncreated. And how are we to be taught by the uncreated? Uh, the Bible. Yeah, the Bible. The Bible's really handy 
Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.